everybody, good morning. Hey, welcome to Faith Community Church. It's great to have all of you here. Uh, hey, before we get started this morning, I, I'm on the uh, weekly uh, text list for Faith Community Church, as you all should be, okay? And I saw on Friday that you guys gave $25,000 to Heart for the Valley this year, and I just want to say that is awesome. Thank you very much for your generosity and all that. <clears throat> Thanks for your generosity in, in all the different ways that you guys give here, but that is, that is really super cool. So, uh, kids are going to be, middle school and high school kids are going to be packing those meals this Saturday and they'll be distributing, driving them around all over the St. Croix Valley and, and uh, giving those to families. So I just wanted to say too, you know, if you are a kid this morning, middle school or high school, and you're not a part of Refuge yet, but you're kind of thinking, oh, you know, I could use some better friends or I'd like to get to know some people in the church or something like that. This is a great uh, excuse, a great opportunity to come meet some other kids, do some good together, pack meals for a morning. Uh, so sign up today, okay? I, I'm not promising you a new best friend or anything, but at least you won't meet bad people and you'll have fun, okay? That I, that I guarantee, all right? So check that out if you're a kid this morning. Well, we're continuing our series, The Destiny, this morning, and we have two scripture readings because here at Faith Community Church, we are overachievers. Yeah, exactly. So uh, turn with me. Our first scripture reading is in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, that's on page 43, if you want to borrow a Bible from one of the chairs in front of you. Quick disclaimer before we do our scripture reading this morning. Uh, especially if you're new, maybe you're checking out church for the first time this morning or joining us online and you're new to the Bible or something like that, in our scripture reading today, just a heads up, it's full of really strange names and strange places and we're all going to be okay, okay? We're going to persevere together and we'll, we'll explain them uh, after we're done reading, okay? So don't give up. Everybody there? Sam there? If you're there? All right, Genesis chapter 49 verse 28. If you look, if you have your Bible open, you can look up the page there and you'll see uh, this man Jacob has been blessing his sons. Blessing, blessing. There's like two pages of blessing there. And then in verse 28, uh, it ends this way. All of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were, brought, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of, the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. 
In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, and I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel-Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Our second reading is from John chapter 14. This is the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you look again at Genesis uh, real quickly, those closing verses of Genesis chapter 49, Jacob gives really specific instructions about where and how he's to be buried. I mean, he gives them the address. You go to thus and such field that was bought from this guy. It's next to this city, and you're going to find this tomb there, and it's in this cave. And then he repeats it all again, and he lets them know, if you get lost, ask the Hittites. They know the field I'm talking about, and so on and so forth. What Jacob is doing with these funny names in these obscure places is simply this. He's making a really strong statement about his place in the plan and the purposes of God. And if you've been following Jacob's story, you know, all the way back to chapter 25, for half of Genesis, then you would know how incredible that is. Jacob wrestled and wrestled his whole life to trust God. And here at the end we see another, uh, just an evidence, that at the end of his life, in the moments before he died, Jacob was trusting God finally uh, with his life and his death. Verses uh, 28 through 32 are here because Jacob wanted to ensure that his children and his grandchildren would understand that as nice as Egypt is, it is not home for them. 
If you were here a couple of weeks ago, maybe you would remember, Pharaoh gave the land of Goshen in northern Egypt to Jacob's family in gratitude for what Joseph had done for the nation of Egypt. And Goshen was a beautiful place. It's described like a garden, okay? So Genesis begins with a garden and it ends in a garden. And Jacob's family, we find out, it it grew there. They prospered there and they were blessed there. And Jacob wants to ensure that his family understands as nice as Egypt has been, this is not home. We do not belong here forever. Goshen has been a gift and we thank God for all of that. But we belong to God and he has promised us another country altogether. A promised land. It's it's an amazing story. Now from from the New Testament perspective, it's appropriate that we should see this as an analogy to our situation today. Israel's relationship with the promised land in Canaan is like our relationship with heaven. That's the way that the New Testament talks about it. We are strangers and exiles as well. We also are just passing through. And as great as the world is, and it's awesome sometimes, we are not home. And we're not meant to ever feel at home. Not completely And so that's why all these verses with all the funny names and the places is here. Jacob gave specific instructions about where he was to be buried to ensure that his children and grandchildren would understand. Whatever I've done with my life, and Jacob had made a lot of mistakes in his life, I died knowing who I belonged to and where my story was going. And there's more. There must be in the story more than just the promise of a promised land. Because in verse 33 it says, When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You say, well, hold on. Okay, his, his body is in Egypt. His people are buried in Canaan. How is it that he's gathered to his people? Well, Hebrews 11 Looking back on this same time period in history, Hebrews 11 says, people who speak this way make it clear they're seeking a homeland. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They seek a heavenly country is what Hebrews is saying about all this stuff. So there's a great opportunity here to get into what Israel believed about what happened to people after they died. That would be a fascinating study. It's not like a super straightforward answer. Remember, we're only in Genesis, okay? So far in the story, God has not really said much about life after death. Really, the only thing God has said so far is that he's going to send a son who's going to crush the head of the evil one and presumably redeem all of creation. So Israel actually wasn't like super preoccupied with life after death. They were waiting for the redemption of this creation. But we can still see in places like verse 33 that although uh, it wasn't super clear how all of this was going to work out, when it would happen and how it would happen, it's clear that even way before Jacob, they believed something would happen after death. That it wasn't just oblivion, even if they didn't know how that would work out or when it would happen. Jacob died knowing that he belonged to God, 
Uh, furthermore, that as complicated and messed up as he had made his life, that God had taken his life up and redeemed it and made it a part of something awesome. And then also we see Jacob died believing that something was after the grave. Something would happen. So my question before we continue this morning is just, uh, can you say that? Can you say that this morning? That you know who you are, you know who you belong to, and you are clear about what is coming when you die. These verses, with the strange names and places, are about theology, not geography. And uh, Jacob is saying, put me in the right place because I want my grandkids to understand whatever I've done in the past, I knew at the end that I belong to the living God. We are not Egyptian, that's the message. We are not Egyptian. We thank God for Egypt and we may experience tremendous blessing here, but we have been set apart for another country altogether. So bury me there with my fathers who are waiting for the same promise. Can you say that this morning? There should be in the church, in our midst here, a very different perspective and aroma and sentiment around death. We hate it. We hate death. We do not celebrate it, we do not revel in it, and we are grieved by it, but we are not afraid of it either. We don't fear death because the resurrection of Jesus has made death for us a doorway into our greatest joy. It is not oblivion. It is not a decay into nothingness. Jesus has turned graves into gardens and a doorway into something incredible. Now, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you ever heard that or thought that? And, and many uh, frustrated agnostics and atheists and, and people who are spiritual but don't affiliate with any religion or just others who are just impatient with the injustice of this world would agree. What good is a whole class of people who are just longing for the day they escape? I mean, what good is that to the world? And the charge is not, just so we're clear, the charge is not complete without merit, okay? But the, the proposed cure sometimes is worse than the disease. So C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And then he gives a bunch of examples from history. He says, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective. In this one, he says, John Piper, commenting on the same thing, writes this. He says, yes, I know. 
It is possible to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. My problem is, I've never met one of those people. In other words, I've never met someone so heavenly minded that they were of no other earthly good. And he goes on to say, I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. In other words, if you meet a Christian who's constantly talking about heaven and is completely useless to the world, it's because he doesn't know what he's talking about heaven. He, he's confused cat poster theology. You know what I mean? Just hang in there, everybody. He's confused that with biblical teaching about heaven. A Christian whose mind is set on heaven and useless to the world, probably thinks about heaven the way that the rest of the world does. That heaven is like this endless board meeting and you float around on clouds the whole time. Like, well, yeah, that would make you pretty useless and, and just, just useless. That has no correspondence to what Jesus has said at all. And again, we've talked about this in the last month or so, but heaven above all else is the place where God dwells. That does not mean that God isn't present everywhere. It just means that in heaven, uh, God's presence is experienced in a completely unfiltered way. That his glory and his majesty and his holiness is experienced with no veil between us. And at this present moment, there's a veil between this world and that one because... Anyone who experiences the power, majesty, and glory of God without that protection dies. And that's why we don't see it as it truly is right now. We tend to wrestle with, you know, is, is heaven real? Like, is this home that the Bible promises, is, is this a real place? And when I die, like... Is there something there waiting for me? You need to know that from God's perspective, the question is, are you real? I mean, how can anything as fleeting as we are be real? Things that are here today and gone tomorrow, are, are we really real? I mean, our whole lives are like a wisp of smoke. We're like a, a mist. So Hebrews says, we're the ones that are the shadow. Okay, it, it's this present age that's the whisper. It's this world, not that one that's passing like a dream. So uh, C.S. Lewis uh, just refers to this whole thing as the shadowlands. We live in the shadowlands. And what's coming is the, the real thing. So uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this really great book with a terrible title, called The Great Divorce, just a terrible title, okay? And, and there's a reason for it, but he wrote this book and it's about these people like us who come to the outskirts of heaven. And he says, if, if people like us in our present state were to, to be in heaven right now, people would like strain to see us. Like you, you just look like a mirage or like a shadow or something, you know, like that. Whereas heaven is so real, it is so solid, the raindrops like go through you like bullets. He said, you, until we, so this is the way 1 Corinthians puts it. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But we have to, we have to put on the imperishable. 
Otherwise, we can't, like, it'd be like, uh, it'd be like you standing by the sun. Goodbye. Good luck. Poof. So Randy Alcorn has written what I think might be the best book on heaven in the world. Okay, Randy Alcorn, write that down. And the name of the book is Heaven. Okay, if you need to write that down. Here's something, here's just a quote from Randy Alcorn. He says, when we think of heaven as as unearthly, our present lives seem unspiritual as well, like they don't matter. When we grasp the reality of what's coming, our present lives on earth suddenly do matter. Conversations with loved ones matter. The taste of food matters. Work, leisure, creativity, and study matter. Rivers and trees and flowers matter. Laughter matters. Service matters. Life on earth matters, not because it's the only life we have, but precisely because it isn't. It's the beginning of a life that will continue without end, the precursor of life on the new earth. A friend, uh, now it's been several weeks ago, but a friend shared an interview with me that Tim Keller did recently. Tim Keller's been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and the interviewer asked him, has anything for you changed since your diagnosis? And he said, yes, I've become much more focused in my life. When you feel like you've got, you know, your whole life ahead of you, you can kind of afford to be distracted and put your energies in this direction and that direction. But when you know the end is near, you tend to get real focused in on things. And he said, my focus right now is becoming as much like Jesus as I can be. Okay, well, he's a pastor, so that's pretty boilerplate. All pastors are supposed to say that. This is what really caught my attention, though. He goes on to say, quote, He's focused on this or he's focused on this because I know that God has something for me to do in heaven. And right now, Tim Keller by the way, if you don't know who is like one of the greatest pastors of all time, okay? And he's saying, "And right now, I don't feel that I'm the kind of person God wants to use that way in heaven." You hear what he's saying? He's saying I'm focused on becoming more like Jesus because I have a lot of growing to do because heaven is a place where life really gets going. And I don't, I don't think I'm quite ready for all that. And this is just the apprenticeship right now. Your whole life is just the apprenticeship and heaven is the place where things really kick off. Now, conventional you know, cultural thinking is that heaven is not only boring, but it's kind of the end. You know, you die, and you either go to the good place or you go to the bad place. It's a meme, it's a trope, it's a joke. Well, that is not what Jesus says. When Jesus talks about heaven, he's talking about a place that pulses with the life of God. And And that's when life just, poosh, actually takes off. And Keller's just saying, my focus is on preparing for that day. Here's just another example this this week. I don't know about the rest of the world, okay, but this week in Hudson was registration week for Hudson High School. So if you have an eighth grader like I do, you had to register your kid for high school. Ah! Okay? Well, so what's involved in that process? You know, you sit them down, and they've got to select their classes, and you get to high school, you have all these options, so there's 
in Hudson High School has like 50 electives or something like that, and so you, you choose your electives and all this stuff. Well, what's normally in your mind as you think about the classes you're gonna take and all this other stuff? I need to get decent grades so that I get into a decent school after I graduate, and then maybe after that go to another decent graduate school, and if I'm insane and I enjoy punishment, even more school after that. So that you can get a good, what? Job, so you can support your family, so you can put a little by, so that you can retire at a decent age and leave something behind for your family, right? Eighth graders? <laughs> and my, 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 my question, and this is a conversation I have with my eighth grader, then what? What happens then? Because in our house, that's what we're getting ready for. And oh, to be able to pull your feet up into bed and to die, knowing I'm going to see my king, whom I have served since eighth grade. That's the goal. I want you to be able to say, if you're a high school student this morning, I want you to be able to say with Jacob and Tim Keller and you know, on and on, I am so grateful for Egypt. And if God blesses me here, awesome. And if I prosper here, that's awesome. And if I get to have a family, I mean, just do, 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 do. Awesome, awesome, awesome. But this is not home. Bury me in the promised land. Because that is what I'm waiting for. C.S. Lewis again, he says, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. So Jacob gave these instructions to his family to cultivate in himself, but especially to cultivate in his children a longing for home, for their true home. It's, it's funny, actually, if you look at the places that he mentions here, just as an example, these are very, very old names, okay? Some of these names weren't even being used by the time Genesis was written, okay? But some scholars generally believe that, like this place in particular, Abel Mizraim, beyond the Jordan, is approximately the same place that Israel uh, ended their journey at as they went into the Promised Land. So in his death, Jacob is showing his family the way home that they would retrace hundreds of years later. So matriarchs and patriarchs of the church here, okay? I'll decide, I'll let you decide if you're that age or not, okay? Matriarchs and patriarchs of the church, are you showing us the way home? Like, are you, are you showing us the path of faithfulness and perseverance as you head nearer and nearer to the finish line? We are to cultivate in one another and in ourselves a longing for home because Egypt is so real. Like it's just like so here in your face all the time, right? I mean, if you fast forward to the book of Exodus, when Israel does finally escape slavery in Egypt, what do they do? They pine for Egypt, and they say, oh, do you remember Egypt with those pots of meat that we sat around and the fresh veggies every day? Isn't it? It's crazy. But that is how we are with the world. Oh, I, 
Sorry. I hope Jesus doesn't come back. I haven't gotten married yet. I hope he doesn't. I have to graduate high school. It's not that big a deal, kids. I, you know, I want to have grandbabies, and it's just like, come on. So I was having breakfast with Darcy yesterday, my wife Darcy, and she said, you know, what are you talking about tomorrow? So I told her everything I just told you, but faster. And I said, Darcy, I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling totally stuck because I, I don't know what to tell them about what to do. Like, what is that, what exactly am I asking the congregation to do in response? And she said, Tim, can I tell you a story? I said, of course. And she said, I actually shared this story at Women in the Word this week, and I don't know if you would remember it, and I did not remember it, by the way. But she said, do you remember about three weeks before we got married? We were driving around in your car and talking. And we were just dreaming about the future and the life that we were gonna build together and I was so excited. And I was so excited to marry you. And we had these big plans. And do you remember what you said, Tim? And I did not. And she said, you, you were looking out the window and here I am pouring my heart out. We're about to have the biggest day of our lives. And you said, oh, I can't wait for heaven. So gentlemen, I don't recommend that if you're, <laughs> if you're dating. In the biz, we call that a rookie mistake, okay? So here she is pouring her heart out, talking about you know, the greatest day of our lives is coming up, and I'm so excited, and we're going to share this beautiful life together, and here's all the things we're going to do. And my fiancé is contemplating his death. And she said... After I recovered from my shock and disappointment, she said that was a really important conversation for me because it helped me to understand what our marriage was actually going to be about. That our whole married lives would be about preparing one another for heaven. And that's right. That is for married people that is the meaning and the mission of your marriage, is to cultivate in one another such a profound longing for home that you get each other there. We have, every single person here, whether you're a follower of Jesus this morning or not, everyone here has these longings for home, for security and peace and love. And I just want to say to you this morning, you can't find all those things here. You can't. I, I double-checked with Darcy this morning, okay? We do really love being married to each other. And I, I did check with her. <laughs> and, I, and I would say with absolute sincerity, our, our house is a fun place. I love coming home but it is not home, and it cannot be. We have, you know, three beautiful sons. I wish we had 10. They cannot deliver for us on all the things we wish home would deliver. They can't. You break kids if you ask them to do that. C.S. Lewis again says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. 
I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. The Apostle Paul says exactly the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. He says, not that I have already obtained all of this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he adds, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Isn't there a fear in the back of your mind that if you begin living every day with the hope of heaven, that you'll just, I mean, how does it, aren't we meant to enjoy this life? I mean, isn't that part of the message of scripture? We did Ecclesiastes a year ago, right? Part of the message is you're, you're meant to enjoy the world that God has given you and it's an incredible place. So how are these two things compatible? I just say, actually what we're talking about this morning is the key to enjoying this world. So I told you earlier about this interview with Tim Keller that I was looking for. Well, in trying to find that interview, I stumbled across this article Tim Keller wrote uh, in the Atlantic, and he's talking about how the prospect of his death has impacted he and his wife, Kathy. And he says, one of the most difficult results to explain is what happened to our joys and fears. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening this world with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase to our own embraces, sex, and conversation, bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revolution as the reality of heaven dawns more and more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I've become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can finally see this world for the astonishingly good gift that it is. Close quote. It's as my mind is occupied more and more with heaven that I'm able to just let this world be what it is and enjoy it as God's gift to me. If we leave this place and try to squeeze every last ounce of joy and satisfaction and peace and hope and love and whatever out of this life, we will destroy this life and lose heaven in the process. How many people have ever, <laughs> how many people get to January, you get through the holidays, full and rested, and like, oh, what a great holiday season. How many people does that happen for? Or do you roll into January 2nd, hungover and in debt, and like, what the heck just happened? And we did it again. Like you leave Thanksgiving full of turkey and great time with family and we're going to do it right this year and it's not going to be all about the gifts and we're going to have, we're going to create these amazing memories for our family and January 2nd comes and you're just like, I got to go to work again today. 
I don't even want to like, I don't even like my family anymore. And I don't even, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's because we, you know, we demand from our boats and our vacations and our houses and our families, I need peace, I want security, I want you to love me. And you kill them. Rather than just let them be what they are. Give thanks for the good gifts that God has given you and to know I am not home, but I will be. It's a tremendous gift. As we go to communion this morning, the second scripture reading that we did today, John chapter 14, uh, I chose that one for two reasons. One, it's just another one of those great places. There's a dozen of them where Jesus promises that he's coming again. But we're sharing communion this morning. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I tell you that it was so? And then he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, won't I come back for you? And for us, it's just, you know, it's just kind of a fun, it's a weird thing, you know, weird metaphor. But it, for first century people, they would have immediately recognized Jesus is using engagement language right now. See, in the first century, when a young Jewish man met a young Jew Jewish girl that he wanted to marry, he would go, maybe he and his dad would go, but they would go and talk with her father and, you know, hash out the details. But then he would have to go to the girl and he would take a cup of wine, like we're doing now. And he would say to her, this is my covenant with you. And then he would drink, and if she said yes, she would take the cup and she would drink as well. And then the deal was done, they're engaged. We trade rings, they would share a cup of wine. Wine in the Bible is like this incredible metaphor for just life and blessing and the hope of a beautiful future and things. And so they would share this cup of wine. And then he would leave. He would go back to his family's estate and he would add on to dad's house and create a new space for his family to live in. And the richer the dude, the longer he'd be gone. And her job was to stay behind with her family and prepare for the wedding. And again, the bigger the wedding, the longer it would take. But that's the language Jesus uses when he says to the church, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I build this place, won't I come get you? So as we go to communion this morning, I just want you to take a minute right now just to bring yourself before the Lord and to give thanks, to reaffirm in sharing this little meal, I believe you're coming again and I cannot wait to see your face. One more thing about Genesis before we leave. We didn't even talk about the second half of our reading because we've talked about it like four times this month. The whole point of that, that whole story of Jacob being taken to Canaan, the whole point there is that God promised to make Jacob great and he did it. Jacob was buried like a king of Egypt. So when Jesus says to the church, won't I come for you again? The message of Genesis is he always does what he says he'll do. Just take one minute right now before we share to just pray and give thanks.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's stand and sing.